Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy Thanksgiving week! As usual, on holiday weeks, we mined our extensive archive of around 350 conversations with artists and art historians for this week's program. We found a good one, Barbara Kruger. In 2012, the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden debuted a Barbara Kruger commission called Belief and Doubt, and Kruger came onto the Man podcast to discuss the Hirshhorn work and more. Now, over three years later, the work, which is installed in, really throughout, the lower level of the Hirshhorn's Gordon Bunshaft Design Building, is still there. It'll remain on view into 2016. Kruger was the subject of a 1999 retrospective at the Museum of Contemporary Art, a show that was curated by Anne Goldstein. Her installation on the Italian Pavilion at the 2005 Venice Biennale helped her win that Biennale's Lifetime Achievement Award. The most recent major monograph on Kruger's work was published by Rizzoli in 2010. Barbara Kruger, after the break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Rothko for more. And I'm back. Barbara Kruger, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, Two weeks ago, I did an entire show about Richard Diebenkorn, who made ocean paintings that were great both as big paintings and that were great as small paintings on cigar box lids. And that got me thinking that throughout your career, you've done work at wildly different scales, from matchbox covers to the side of the temporary contemporary at MoCA to the front of the Italian Pavilion in Venice, and of course now this multi-floor space at the Hirshhorn. And and your work scales beautifully, which is just an extraordinarily rare thing. So I was wondering, do you think about scale when you you make a work, or is that an incidental variable, or do you not sweat it at all and figure it'll work? Oh, yeah, I really think about scale. You know, architecture was my first love, my first real engagement in visuality, and it wasn't until much later in my career that I could be able to spatialize my work, which meant a tremendous amount to me. My early work was as big as you could make a black and white photo on one piece of paper at that time, you know. So I always sort of felt that there was something about engaging the viewer through size and scale, which I was interested in. But I also believe it's possible to do a very small work 
and as many artists do, and have them as compelling as something huge and gargantuan. So to me, it's not just about size, you know, but there are levels of effectivity that come with various scales. So as you left Mademoiselle magazine in the late 60s and started to make work in the 70s and 80s, were you already hoping to work on, on mammoth walls or the mammoth sides of buildings? or? Oh, my goodness, Tyler. I never thought I would have the career uh, that I have doing the work that I have. I never thought anybody would know my name. And so, of course, no, I did not think that at all when I was working at Mademoiselle. No, not at all. In fact, I didn't even... I didn't even know if I could, you know, be what one would call an artist. But it sure seems that once you had opportunity, the work was ready for the scale that was offered to you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. With my earlier black and white works, when I tried to get the scale up, because you were limited by, I think, uh, 48 by 96, that was the biggest size, my first very large photo works were done in three pieces and framed separately. So they literally had frames you know, separating the image, you know, because that was all you could do technologically at that time. So, yes, I really wanted to get the image up. That was important to me very much. Well, I want to try to understand a little bit on how you settled what a Barbara Kruger is. As, as I mentioned a moment ago, you started making work in the late 60s, right about the time you left Mademoiselle Magazine, which was in 1968. And I've read in various interviews and essays that you did a little bit of, you, you tried making work by sewing, by knitting, by painting, and different essays kind of focus on different things. Um, could you maybe take us through what you started doing after you left the magazine as you tried to kind of figure out what a Kruger was? Well, I barely made art in the 60s. I really didn't. You know, I was working as a freelance designer, doing book covers, scraping any kind of money together I possibly could. I remember being in school and asking my teacher, can I be an artist just by, you know, working with photographs and, you know, and whatever and, you know, blowing them up? And they said, no, 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 you know. And and also, I don't have any degrees, so that early work was really student work without being in school. I was out of school by my sophomore year. I was at Syracuse for a year and then Parsons for about a year and two months. And I started working mm, when I was 19 or 20. So all that stuff I had to figure out by myself without a peer group or without school, you know. And the art world at that time was incredibly intimidating, as it is now to most people. It was much smaller, a few more than 12 white guys in lower Manhattan. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I, I didn't really think about those things. I was intimidated. I, I started crocheting or stitching, but then I stopped that because after a little time, I realized it was a better career for the woman up the block. It really didn't engage me the way I wanted to be engaged. It had a very sedative-like quality. And again, I was still trying to figure out what it might mean to call myself an artist, you know. So it was really an incremental thing. And, of course, the irony is that the work that did fuel my self-definition was the beginnings of the work that I had learned to do as an editorial designer and how that job 
morphed with a few changes into what I would later call my work. I've read a lot of essays and and about you in the last couple of weeks and Q and A's, and I've never quite heard or read the story of how or when you realized that the combination of photo and text and the very distinctive way you you came to do it. I've never read the story of how you realized that that could be an artwork, that that could be the thing you make. Yeah, I think that it was just, I, you know, I had learned at Condé Nast a sort of fluency of combining image and text. And my change was to, you know, change the text I was using and to really alter the scale from page size to a much larger print, which was black and white. A, because there was no way I could afford to do anything in color. The red came much later. The red came much, much later. You know, these were black and white gelatin silver prints that I made. High Photo made them for me on 53rd Street between Madison and 5th. I brought them cardboard, carried them back to my place in, in the subway, you know, schlepping them up like five flights of stairs here. And, you know, and, and that's how it went for a while, you know. Oh, my, some of my earlier work was smaller, but, you know, basically that's sort of how things happened incrementally. That's fascinating to hear about how the work started in black and how color only came later. So did the red come in when you became able to pay for it? No, it was also technological, too. Yeah, it was technological, too. The earliest red, I had silk screened onto the black and white prints because it was so tricky. It was just so tricky. And I remember when I started making prints out in L.A., and we tried to figure out how to get red on there, and it was just it was just very hard. But it was basically a black and white print that I was working with. And later on, when I started to work in vinyl and do large room spaces, installations, that was in 91, all those room spaces were still silkscreen because there was no digital printing at that scale. And my early vinyl works, the large vinyls, starting in 88, 87, 88, were silkscreen print. And to do one of them in black and white costs a fortune. To make them in color, I couldn't have afforded it. No. There's, there's another decision that you made early on that has run through your work ever since that I'm interested in, and that is accepting a few room-sized installations you've done that have included excerpts from like a newspaper so you know, or, or such. So far as I can find, you've never used a serif font. So that was, it looks for all the world like that was a very clear decision early on for you. So why, why, did, why have you always used sans serif instead of serif? You know, in some early books that I did, Picture Readings, for instance, which was my photograph of, of architectural structures in Los Angeles and Northern California and Florida, which I did in, I think, 77, published in 78. I used Century School Book because it was a nice, clean, serif face. But once I started doing, and also in my earlier Picture Readings work that I showed at Franklin Furnace and another series, What People Leave in Cars, I use Century School Book there, too. When I started doing larger images, I just went to sans serif because I just felt it was 
very visually arresting. It cut through the grease. It helped me, quote, reach out and touch someone. <laughs> and I liked the way it looked. I, I just liked the way it looked. In 2010, Rizzoli published a monograph of your work, a, a monograph in which you were involved. And I guess this is maybe my last question about kind of kind of process and formalism, and it's only sort of a question about process and formalism. But you did something in that book I've never seen an artist do. Your earliest, the earliest work in the book, the work from the early 80s, is in the back of the book and not the front of the book. And I wonder why you did that. Oh, that was really important to me because between the time of the last book, which was quite a bit of time, and that, I had done a very large amount of big scales exterior and interior installations. And in fact, that had become a large part of my work, both through room wraps and videos. And I really thought that it was important to show that work and to privilege that work in the book. You know, that was so important to me. That was, to me, the project of that book. The the photographs in the Rizzoli book, and we'll have a link to the Rizzoli book on Modern Art Notes and on manpodcast.com, the photographs of the installations and the public works are absolutely terrific. They're, they're really great. I also noticed in the book, because of the way you'd placed the early work in the back. Oh, and I should, I should mention that the, the other book you're talking to, I, I think is about, is I think the Ann Goldstein MoCA catalog from uh, 1999 and 2000. The MoCA and... Earlier than that, there was Love for Sale, which was my Abrams book in 1992, um, the editor of whom at Abrams was Charles Myers, who was also the person who was heading Rizzoli when I did that third book. Uh, so we've been talking about some of the formalisms and such around about how your work looks, but of course, there's a lot more there than just how it looks. There's the... the conceptual underpinning and, and the quotes and the source of your very sharp intellectual foment. And so I guess going back to, to that period we were talking about before, the, the early 1980s, how important was Ronald Reagan to you? You know, I think that artists, you know, cultural producers, whether they're visual artists or writers, or filmmakers, journalists, you know, all of us are sort of constructed and contained by the culture that we're in. And that determining factors, the fear of, you know, what might not be good, the hope for what might be better, uh, the feel of our days and nights, you know, that really determines what kind of work we do to a certain degree. Not literally, but certainly in a larger picture, it does. And, you know, I just remember a long spell of which there were many after that that were, you know, certainly not the most sort of productive time for culture or for the non 1% in this country. And I also remember it as the beginning assaults on the NEA with uh, Lippmann and Hilton Kramer and, you know, the end of funding for artists, and sure, you know, I, I remember that very much. But, you know, that's continued on through the, la- the following decade, of course, with, uh, with you know, George I and George II. Reagan, of course, was famed for his communication skills, communication skills that, that were far above 
the other major national politicians of the day, whether whether it be his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, or Walter Mondale, who who ran against Reagan in 1984 and who was at one point reduced to merely laughing at, at Reagan's jokes or joke at his expense. And as I looked through the early work before talking to you, I found myself thinking that you were communicating through artworks as clearly, simply, directly as as Reagan was through television. And I don't know that there are that many examples of people on on what we would now call the progressive left who, who were doing that. And I wonder, I guess, if you took note of his communication skills, if you were conscious of, I don't know, providing rejoinders to maybe not specifically to him, but maybe to that worldview? Oh, no, I, I was not, you know, sort of replying to him per se. I mean, I don't think he was... I mean, he's called a great communicator. Other people would call that an actor, you know, whose whose handlers had the sense of hiring some pretty good speechwriters. One of them, the egregious Peggy Noonan, you know, and and he could read those lines effectively, and that was very important, you know. Uh, I mean, the importance of speechwriters and you know and handlers can never be uh, understated or overstated. I mean, it, it's just there. So for me, I tried to figure out ways that I could make meaning that engage people, think, help promote doubt, ask questions, but also, and I've said this many times before, I have a relatively short attention span, which sort of makes me, you know, understanding of what's happening today in many ways, you know, the end of narrative, the end of books, the end of most movies that aren't event movies, you know, I understand that. And I try to make work that, that engages that kind of quick viewing. But I would also hope that people could come back to the work and it would make meaning for them in a productive way. My guest on this week's Modern Art Notes podcast is Barbara Kruger. We'll be right back after a break. And I'm back with Barbara Kruger. I also wanted to ask you about some specific pieces. The one I'd like to start with is... I guess a piece you've done in series uh, that started in the late 80s and the early 90s, and it's a piece in the shape and format, if you will, of the American flag. On the, on the red field, there are white words, there's white text instead of stripes, and on the blue field, there's text instead of stars. And you've done this piece, or versions of it, I guess I should say, in different forms, on canvas, on the side of the, of the TC at MOCA, as I mentioned earlier, um, at Mary Boone Gallery in 1991. And it is a piece I'm deeply in awe of. In some ways, it seems to me that it equates patriotism with a questioning mechanism, even with dissent, and urges the questions or ideas you posit as an alternative to jingoism or mere flag-waving. I was wondering where that piece came from. Oh, it was just, you know, at a point where every candidate for running for office had to have a flag pin on and everything. The flag was such an important signifier. And... I understand the power of this country and its generosities, and I'm lucky that I was born here, you know, especially being a young woman who wanted to be an artist. This was the place to do that with all its struggles. I think that this is an incredible place for invention and reinvention and self-invention, and I'm, I'm very clear about that. But I do believe that people cynically use the strengths and powers of this country in ways that are not about that kind of understanding, that there's something else. And that something else was posited in the blue portion of that flag where it says, look for the moment when pride becomes contempt. 
And I wrote that because I think that it is possible to be proud of a certain cultural construction, a social construction, but also to really be vigilant about when that pride becomes abusive and contemptuous of everything that is not that. Flag burning was a major issue in the 1988 presidential campaign between George Herbert Walker Bush and Mike Dukakis. Did that have an impact on, on what became the piece? No, 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 no. Yeah. Was there any particular moment or event that you were thinking about in those three years, or was it just kind of a broader theme of, of hyper-patriotism, almost, I don't know, at times, jingoism? I try to make work about how we are to one another. And I remember, I think it was in about 2005 or six, I redid an earlier work for a show in Lucerne. And it was one of my first installation room wraps. And around the room were various images and a crowd and a sound element. And it said, love like us, hate like us, think like us, pray like us. And I remember someone said to me at that point, was this work a response to 9-11? But of course, you know, I did that work about eight years before 9-11. And I'm saying that all these sort of instances of both the brutalities and kindnesses that people employ are just stuff that I sort of like to stew about and make work about. And they're very seldom event-based. They're more of these free-floating affections and pathologies that are constantly circulating in the world that we live in. The canvas version of this piece, or a canvas version of this piece, was installed uh, in Peter Ely's September 11th show at PS1 last year. And... Uh, as I wrote on Modern Art Notes at the time, I wasn't really maybe thrilled with the way the curator used the piece, but it was um, an overwhelmingly powerful piece that, that really spoke to what, what you were just speaking at about how, uh, you know, when an artist gets something right, it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, 1991 or 2011 or 2047 or whatever, the 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 idea fits without having to be tied to a single event. Well, one, one would hope so. You know, one tries for that, but you can read a novel written 200 years ago, you know, that feels as vital as today's headlines in many ways. You can see a movie made, what, 60 years ago that, that like hits home on a certain level, that white light moment. And you mean, to me, this is the power of what culture can do, the ability to visualize, textualize, musicalize the feel of the moments of our lives. Sounds like a commercial, that last part. But, you know, nevertheless, I mean, how how art can economically show and tell what it might feel to be alive. And that's something that I try for. I try for that. And my work, like all artists' works, are a series of attempts. I make no great claims for my work. Some works better than others, and, and you try again and go for the gold, whatever. But it's like it just continues. For a critic, that's a real gold moment, though, when you see a work that was made you know, 20 years ago and that works just as effectively now and that you're pretty sure is going to work just effectively as 
in, you know, 20 years in the future. That, that's great. That, that makes me feel great, I have to tell you. But, you know, on one level, the egoless nanosecond, you think, wow, what if these issues weren't in play anymore, you know? Or is there so something I'm, so American about the very issues in that piece that they are just fundamental to to our culture and our politics, and as a result, a piece about them is going to be contemporary for a very long time. I would think so, but you know, these questions of of pride and issues of nationalism and patriotism, power and its abuse are certainly alive in Europe and Asia and Africa and the Middle East and everywhere. You know, these are these are ongoing issues and contestations between human beings and hierarchies, and that hierarchy, the hierarchy doesn't have to be about nation states. It can be about families, it can be about religions, it can be about any sort of grouping. Another piece I wanted to ask you about is a series of works that you've made for public places, such as a bus stop that makes a picture of a man, um, possibly a stock photo of an apparently successful kind of middle-aged man, with some text about how well his life or career is going. And then at the end, the text comes to just about the same thing. Quote, I just found out I'm pregnant. What should I do? And it's a, uh, uh, it's, it's a gut punch of a, of a piece, and I was wondering how it came about. You know, I was lucky enough to be invited by the Public Art Fund. I think that was one of three projects I had done for them to do a series of, of billboards and bus kiosks. And those three images, there are three of them in that series, are what I came up with. And I, I was so happy to be able to have them distributed through Manhattan and Queens. And wow, it just meant, meant the world to me to be able to do that. And, you know, I think talking about time passing, I remember one of the earliest marches on Washington for women's reproductive freedom being there at the early, early one. And then 20 years later, going to another one and having the same thing sort of happening. And I was just, I was just crying. I couldn't believe it. And sure enough, it's, there'll be another one soon. And it's just, these are, again, these contestations about power and bodies. And, and again, they're, they're not indigenous to America. It's like everywhere. The body and who has control over it, men's and women's bodies, is just, it's at play. Your work about bodies and control has also focused on, on domestic violence, to, for example. When you make those works, is your do you, do you sit down in the studio or at a, in a studio-like space and, and, and focus on the issue, or is it a different process where something is revealed to you in the process of daily life? They seem very kind of... I mean, they're very powerful, but they also feel very unmanufactured, very unforced. Daily life. I mean, the everyday is so important to me. I love the moments between events. Events freak me out. <laughs> I don't care what they are. Party openings. Oh, my God. I'd rather not, you know, uh, anything. But the everyday, the repetitions of the everyday are so important to me. And it has fueled my work from the very beginning and my life and the comforts that it offers. You know, I'm never bored. <laughs> That's one thing I'll say. And basically, I'm a mobile worker. I'm a cafe writer or a bus writer, writer, you know, or a thinker. 
carry a little notebook with me anywhere. And, you know, that's how things happen. Or I'll just sit and look out the window or do stuff like that. And, and I am a news junkie and have been for years, hard, hard copy newspaper junkie for years, and now more increasingly reading online, which is sort of a drag because I love reading online. But I do notice that you read more rigorously in hard copy. You know, I, I read every section of a newspaper in hard copy. Online, you know, you go to your preference, you go to your bookmarks, your world is bigger and smaller at the same time. So you don't go looking to make a work about, say, domestic violence. It comes to you as part of your daily life, and then maybe you file it away for when you have a piece or a time where you want to address that issue. Well, there have been times when I've been invited to do things, and I will address those issues. Like, for instance, that big installation I did in, in Glasgow at Gallery of Modern Art, the big museum in the center of town, which is the back cover of the Rizzoli book. That show, it was a yearly exhibition which was, was, was basically about large issues that were specific. And I usually don't do things like that, but that really was was about that. And, and Amnesty had something to do with it, Amnesty International, and a, a number of other hold a check on that. I'm not sure if that was it, but I know it was a sponsor, so I'll, I'll have to look that up. But the other campaign, quote-unquote, I did for domestic violence was also something that I had been asked to do. For years now, you have, I don't know if resurrected is the quite, word, quite the right word, but at least revisited your previous career as a graphic designer. You were, of course, a graphic designer for Condé Nast and, and Mademoiselle in the 60s. And your work has popped up in Newsweek or in New York Magazine, the New York Times op-ed page. Listeners will probably immediately be able to conjure mind, to mind your New York Magazine cover of Elliot Spitzer, with the word brain and a strategically placed arrow. It's one of the most famous magazine covers of the last decade or three. Do you different at this point, do you differentiate between graphic design, a magazine cover or a, or something for the New York Times op ed page and, and what might be called gallery art, say a commission or something for a biennial or a museum? Well, I mean, it has a level of site specificity to it. I wouldn't make that work that I had made ordinarily with a picture of Spitzer with that on it. But New York Magazine asked me to engage the issue. But those were assignments, you know, but I was happy to engage them because they had to do with bodies, power, control, abuse of power. Yeah, I would never consider myself, I was never a successful quote-unquote designer. I, I think that the difference between being an artist and being a designer on a certain level is, you know, the client relationship. You know, I make work for myself and what my issues and what my concerns are. In many ways, my work as an artist was a substitutional activity. I changed the text that I had to do for magazines, you know. They became mine. They were my concerns, my engagement. It wasn't about, you know, selling a cashmere sweater to somebody, you know. I would I would probably argue that in your career as an artist, you're closer to being a writer than you are to being a designer a writer and a very careful editor. Yeah, I, I do like words have always been important to me. And I wrote for Art Forum for many, many years about 
TV and movies, not about art, <laughs> not about visual art as constituted. But yeah, I mean, th- those are those are important things for me. But you know, I really, I really sort of, I've been so fortunate to be able to make meaning through certain visual skills that I develop and. That sort of semblance of beauty, that sort of visual arrangement really means a lot to me. And the ability to spatialize those arrangements, wow, that to me is just totally thrilling, whether I'm doing it through video, you know, which, and video is great because you can really, you can really arrange the scale just through the size of the projection, you know, that's sort of terrific. This to me is the greatest opportunity, and to have people who know my name and ask me to do this in spaces, oh man, I'm just, wow, I've won won the lottery on a certain level. I feel so fortunate, I feel, because it just as easily could have not happened. I feel success, you know, or not success, you know, what's visible and what isn't, is a combination, again, of hard work to a certain degree, insistence historical conditions, fortuitous social relations. You know, I've said this, you know, but I I could repeat it a million times. Uh, It's so complicated what becomes visible and what does not. One other thing on you as writer and editor. Um, In recent years, and including in the new piece at the Hirshhorn, you have uh, occasionally used quotations uh, or words that are not your own. So, for example, in the Hirshhorn piece, there's a Malcolm X quote. why did you decide to use writing that wasn't yours, and is that a harder and easy decision for you? Oh, you know, I've I've used that particular quote from Malcolm X a number of times on some buses I've done, bus wraps over the years. I think it's it's just a great quote because it talks about it talks about vanity, intelligence. It's funny, but it's serious. And sort of, I like that, you know, I like that sort of ability, think hard and laugh hard, you know, <laughs> to, to, to really engage both those things, both sort of pleasure and criticality is really important. So speaking of laugh, laughing hard, my, my last question, might I, I might be totally wrong with this, but I'm curious. In, in 1983, you did a project with the Public Art Fund in New York City titled Message to the Public. And it's a project that featured a billboard in Manhattan that said uh, a series of things, such as, quote, I'm not trying to tell not, you anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I just want you to think about what you see when you watch the news on TV and so on. Have you ever wondered, or maybe do you know, if if the billboard in the movie, the Steve Martin movie, L.A. Story, came out of that piece? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I really don't know. But it's interesting how much things have changed since then. How television is still, you know, preponderant and important, but people watch it in so many different ways, and 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 how the internet has changed so much, and how our attention spans are are so sliced and diced in different ways. So it's true, and yet it's changed. And by the way, just whether my work has been used, I mean, I see my work pop up, you know, in sort of renditions of it in lots of different places, and it's so thrilling to me. Again, because I just never thought anybody would know it. And I did a work last year in Bregan's. There was, there was an exhibition 
the English title was That's the Way We Do It, and it was about so-called appropriation work, and I was included in the show, and what I did for the work was there was like a 150-foot wall, and I went on the internet and found 550 images based on the style of my work, and the whole wall was those images, but they had to be pretty small because they were such small little thumbnails. So I took the hand holding the card from the I shot therefore I am image and I repeated that five times and put all those 550 images inside that card. <laughs> and it's like such a goof. It's so funny to see all that and of course ever all of them copyright their image and you know all that. And those are again issues of intellectual so-called intellectual property which is really the issue of the 21st century. Uh, too many times, just a euphemism for corporate control in many ways. I believe in copyright, but this is ridiculous what's happening. Well, Barbara Kruger, it's been a thrill to have you on the Modern Art Notes podcast, and thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, this has been a pleasure. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.